Our text this morning is all of Acts chapter 26, which records for us a a really fascinating scene. It's a scene that's chock full of of intrigue and and emotion and grace. As the Apostle Paul, that beloved preacher and church planter, is given the chance to sort of make a defense of himself, as it says there, to speak for himself before this figure known as King Agrippa. It might be worth noting that Paul, by this time, has been in prison for roughly over two years as he is here now making this defense of himself. If you remember back in Acts chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, but just a brief sort of segue into this scene. Acts chapter 20, he leaves the church at Ephesus in the most tearful of goodbyes because his heart is set on Jerusalem. And Paul sails to or travels to Jerusalem. He goes there and promptly gets arrested for preaching in the temple. That's in Acts chapter 21. And then he's passed around from one magistrate to the next. And he's eventually kept in custody by the governor named Felix. And in fact, Acts chapter 24, just look at that verse at the end. Acts 24, 27, it says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius of Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. During those two years, as we just noted, a new governor comes into office. So Portius Festus or, uh, succeeds Felix and he's immediately approached by a group of priests uh, to determine what should be done about the, the Paul situation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. It says, now three days. He only gets three days in office before he's bombarded by these Jews about what they're going to do, what he's going to do about Paul. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, that means they urged Felix, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Notice, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So Festus immediately gets into office. He's bombarded by these Jews, these these religious men, chief priests who are adamant. They are so frustrated by Paul and all the ruckus that he's causing that they want him. Actually, their motive is to get him released. And it's, it's, it's put in, this, in these terms, these very elaborate showy terms. We want to try him in Jerusalem. We want to make sure he's tried before our elders, our authorities. And all the while, they know that they're planning just to murder him on the way back to Jerusalem. It's very conniving, very deceitful. And we shouldn't be surprised, really. These are the same chief priests, the same group of guys, by the way, that have been causing headaches for the people of God since the days of Jesus. <laughs> They've been working. You can go all the way back to Mark chapter 3, where it records the fact that the Pharisees were working with the Herodians. They were working with people of Rome to try and get rid of Jesus. And they're still up to the same games. Still doing the same sorts of things, trying to work their way in order to get rid of Paul. Get rid of any mention of Christ. But of course, if you know, Acts chapter 22, Paul reveals the fact that he's a Roman citizen, which is a very important thing because that means he can only be tried under Roman law. So he is Rome's problem. 
So Festus says, no, I'll, I'll deal with this myself. I'm a Roman. I will deal with this Roman myself. So he hears Paul's story at the beginning of Acts 25. And that, at the end, is where Paul makes his appeal to Caesar. Notice verse 6 of 25. Of chapter 25, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he arrived, (laughs) notice this, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him. Notice, I love how Luke records this, that they could not prove. (laughs) Paul argued his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one could give, uh, give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is a very important moment in the life of Paul, but also as these proceedings have gone on. He appeals to Caesar. He's allowed to do that. He has Roman rights in appealing to Caesar. That just means that he has just made it to where Festus has no more jurisdiction over him. This governor that he's standing before, when he appeals to Caesar, that means that court has no sort of authority on Paul's fate anymore. Because now his case, whatever it may be, whatever concocted charges that those Jews had made up to lay against Paul, that doesn't matter for that court because now it has to go before the emperor of Rome himself. He's just declared that he's appealing to Caesar, which again, I think, makes the scene in chapter 26 so much more intriguing when you know that fact that he is really just biding his time now. He's waiting for that moment when he can go before Caesar and have his case tried in that court. King Agrippa, though, just as we continue segueing into chapter 26, he visits Festus. He, uh, he comes and, and visits him in Caesarea in Jerusalem and he learns about the Paul situation. Notice 22, chapter 25, verse 22. It says, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Festus arranges another hearing with all of the pomp and circumstance that you might imagine. Look at verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. There's all kinds of, of pageantry going on. There's all kinds of showiness going on as King Agrippa walks into that room to hear from this lowly man, Paul, who has suddenly decided that he wants to have his case tried before Caesar. I think he's making a big show to impress a lot of people. But the key point is, Paul is not on trial here. This is not like, you know, the famous courtroom scenes that you might see on any sort of daytime TV show. This is not like a trial where Paul is really making a defense of himself. He doesn't even have to go through with this charade. 
He's appealed to Caesar. That's the only court where it really matters what he says. This is sort of just like a, an exhibition. This is this thing that Herod arranges, that King Herod Agrippa arranges, is sort of just an exhibition, a show. He wants to hear from Paul himself. They don't even know what to charge him with. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. I have nothing definite. This is Festus talking. Festus is talking to King Agrippa and he says, I have nothing definite to write, my Lord, about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. (laughs) He doesn't know what to charge Paul. He's heard from the Jews. It doesn't really make sense. They're bickering about some religious matter. That doesn't really constitute Roman law. And so now they're trying to figure out if we actually bring him before Caesar. I don't want to waste Caesar's time. That's not a good way to get in Caesar's good graces. So we need to figure out what we're going to charge him with. And that's essentially the scene. You have Festus, the governor, and you have King Agrippa, who's really just like a provincial president of that area. And then you have Paul. And he decides to, get, to do this. Perhaps he was forced to in a way, but he didn't technically have to say anything at this hearing. He's not on trial. But he comes before this hearing. He enters into this audience hall, I think because he knows he can once again preach the gospel. And again, that's exactly what he does. And essentially, I think Festus and Agrippa make a big blunder because they give Paul the preacher... Basically, they're giving him a pulpit. (laughs) And you know that can only go bad if you give a preacher a pulpit. That's very dangerous. And that's essentially what they do with Paul. They're giving him the opportunity to speak. And it's fascinating. When he has this opportunity, what does he say? Again, look at verse 2 of chapter 26. His first words, I consider myself fortunate. Literally, the word is happy. I consider myself happy, even after two years of being imprisoned for just made-up stuff, made-up charges, made-up things against my name, being arrested while I'm preaching in the temple. He, what, how does he begin? He doesn't begin with this long, elaborate explanation. He's not griping. He's not complaining. He's not protesting all of the injustices that he has weathered for two years Instead, he says, I'm happy just that I get the chance to talk. Especially that you, Agrippa, you're in the audience. I'm grateful that you're here. Did you see that? He says, especially, verse 3, because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. This Agrippa, you might know, this is King Herod Agrippa II. The grandson of Herod the Great. He is a Roman-sponsored king over Israel. Familiar with all the ways of Roman politics. But he's also familiar with the theology of the Jews. Which makes Agrippa a very, very compelling, very conflicted character. Who receives the evangelism of Paul. Because Agrippa, sitting there, a high figure within Roman politics. He's sitting there who has a little bit of sympathies for the Jews and their plight to some degree. He's sort of caught in the midst of both worlds. And Paul sort of exposes that, as we'll see. But Paul's defense is not like anything we would expect. Because again, he doesn't argue for his freedom as a 
as a lawyer would or anything like that. He doesn't have elaborate explanations for why he got arrested that day. Instead, he just proceeds to tell his story. He just tells his story. This is perhaps the third time in the book of Acts that we hear Paul's conversion story. The way in which God rescued him out of his life, this former life, and put him into this new one. And I think this is the perfect way that Paul could begin. Because you see, there was no explanation for Paul's life. He couldn't explain away what happened. Paul was standing there as a man whose life defied reason, it defied logic, and that's because his life was a life of pure grace. And he's basically giving evidence to that this whole time that he speaks. And begins by reminding them that he was once on their side. Again, look at verse 4. He's reminding them of who he was. My manner, he says, of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in, in Jerusalem, as known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul was a remarkable student, a very learned man. He was a very excellent, uh, excellently educated, and he was even a part of the, uh, the strictest standard of schools in all of theology known as the Pharisees. He's basically saying, I went to Harvard Law, and you cannot impugn my knowledge I've been there. I've sat where you sat. I'm familiar with all your doctrines. I'm familiar with all the beliefs of the Jews. And he points out, I love how he does this. He points out the irony of this whole thing in verse 6. And now I stand, he says, on trial because of my hope. And the promise God made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. He's trying to point out the irony of this whole situation. Why was he arrested? Because he's preaching about the fact that Jesus is the resurrected Lord. That's his, that's his sermon. That's his message. And it's ironic because... He used to be a Pharisee, and the Pharisees, of course, were one of the few religious sort of denominations, you could say, in those days, who still believed in a resurrection. You know, I've said this before, the Pharisees get a lot of bad rap sometimes, and I think sometimes deservedly so. But one of the things that the Pharisees were good for is the fact that they sort of returned some of the Jewish nation back to Orthodox Judaism. They got their rise in that middle period of your Bible where Malachi ends and Matthew begins. There's like 400 years of history there. That's where the Pharisees kind of blossomed. And they blossomed. Why? Because they were returning to the law. And of course that messed them up in a lot of ways. But one of the things that they sort of, that they, they found back in all of those orthodox sort of doctrines was the doctrine of the resurrection. And of course the Pharisees believed that this resurrection would occur at the end of all time. They didn't believe in you know, the resurrection of the Messiah. They believed in the resurrection of the saints. It would come at the end of all days. So if you die, you would be resurrected. Not because of Christ, but because of God's truth. But Paul is here exposing, again, the irony of all of this scene. He's standing on trial for preaching what was one of their core doctrines. I'm just preaching the resurrection, and here I am on trial because of it. 
And then he, I imagine in verse 8, he sort of turns to the whole audience there, made up of Jews and Romans and all these elite people. And he says, why? He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You believe in yourselves. It's a silly thing that I'm on trial for this. Of course, Paul, for him, the resurrection was not a far off future thing. That's the point of contention. Why were the Jews so up in arms? Because he was preaching that it was Jesus of Nazareth, that Galilean teacher who was causing all kinds of trouble. He was opposing all of our pharisaical doctrines and all that kind of stuff. That guy, that Jesus teacher, he's the one who resurrected. That's their frustration with him. That's why they're so up in arms. Because he was identifying the resurrected Lord as none other than Jesus of Nazareth. If you look at all the sermons, I I challenge you to do this. Go from Acts 1 all the way through the end of Acts. And you'll note the, the common thread throughout the whole book. Out of all the sermons, anytime any of the apostles get up to speak, what are they championing? Is the fact that Jesus is Lord and he resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is the theme of this whole thing. And why? It's because it proves everything. If Jesus is the Lord and he rose from the dead, that's the truth that changes all of it. That changes everything. And Paul is here standing in front of them. Why is, it, why is it thought incredible? Why, why am I on trial for something that you yourselves believe? You're just too blind to see that the fulfillment of that resurrection has, has already been in our midst. It was the Jesus from Nazareth that you put to death. And he rose from the dead. Paul is standing there as a, as, a, as a preacher in that place. And he's testifying to the great fact that the fulfillment of all those long lost hopes of all of the people of Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But what I love is the fact that Paul doesn't, he doesn't just wave a finger at them. He doesn't just stand there and point a finger at them and say, look at all the bad things that you've done. He actually includes himself In that unbelief, in that blindness, and in that ironic tragedy of what he is there standing in. Because just as he, Paul, was ironically, in this weird way, being accused of him, accused of preaching what was one of their core beliefs, Paul too, he testifies to the fact that he too was once persecuting, punishing the church out of zeal for God. Go back with me, chapter 22. no, you have to see his words because these are, I think, really clarifying words than the way that Paul sees himself. Notice chapter 22, look at verse 3. He says, this is uh, before another tribunal. After he's arrested in chapter 21, he says, 22 verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being, notice, zealous for God. As all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison those men and women. He was zealous for God. And out of his zeal, that's what, where, what came out from that zeal was, yes, binding men and women who believed, as he says, in the way. That is, those who followed in Jesus. He was convinced 
Those who are following the ways of Jesus deserve to be locked up. And not just locked up, but they deserved to die. And in fact, back in, 20, back in chapter 26, he testifies to the fact that he had a direct hand in putting people to death. Notice verse 9 of chapter 26. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I imagine Paul welling up with so much emotion as he was relaying these facts, these facts about his own life, that he was once where these men in front of them were. He was handing out orders. He was even given orders to go to places, drag men and women who said that they believed in Jesus out of their homes and drag them to their death. That was Paul. And I think what is so fascinating to me is that at the very end of this statement, you notice what he's confessing? That even not just arresting people, not just putting people to death, what is most burning in his heart is the fact that he made people blaspheme. I had a direct hand in not just arresting and killing, but making people curse God himself. Paul was... A man who was broken. And he's relaying that to this whole company of religious elite and political figures. And he's saying, I was once caught ensnared in irony and tragic unbelief. I was going out of my way to oppress the church of God. Out of my own zeal for God. And he reiterates in verse number 12. That he was on his way to Damascus. You're familiar with that story. I was on my way to another city to, for the same exact reason. To continue in the purpose of persecution. And that's when everything changed. Look at verse 12. He says, in this connection, for this same reason... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Pause. Note. He's before chief priests. And he says, I was on my way with official documents in my hand that gave me the authority to persecute more people that you guys stamped. They were in my hand. I had the authority and the commission of the chief priests. And he says, at midday, O king, he's addressing Agrippa. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, and me and to those in which I will appear to you. 
This day, I think, is burned in Saul's memory, in his mind, in his heart, in his soul. Because as he was on his way to make more blasphemers, to make more martyrs of the church, of those who followed Jesus, who shows up? Jesus himself. And he appears in the, in the brightest display of glory. It's the midday noon sun. The sun is at its brightest, at its hottest, and even brighter than all of that is the glory of the resurrected Lord who appears in front of him on that road to Damascus. And I think what's so fascinating is that instead of reprimanding Paul for all the atrocities that he rained down on the church, what does Jesus do? He reaches out a hand and rescues Paul. He appears to Paul to appoint him, to appeal to him, and to give him a ministry. Jesus redeems Paul on that road so that he might become what? A witness to the church and for the church. You want to talk about a scandal in the early church days? This is that. Paul, the persecutor, the terrorist of the church, is now suddenly been redeemed by the church's Christ himself. Despite all of his brokenness, despite all of his rebellion, despite all the vitriol and havoc and unbelief that was filling Paul. Paul was chosen by Christ himself. And the mission that he's given was nothing more than the simple message that in Jesus alone is found all light and hope and forgiveness. Notice what he says verse 17. This is Jesus talking. He says, I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amazing. You want to talk about amazing. The contrast couldn't be more apparent because Paul goes from hunting down the followers of Jesus to now he's a helper to them. He goes from harassing the church for believing in Jesus to heralding the message that he's the one it's all about. It's all about Jesus. And then he gets to verse 19 as he's standing before this tribunal. And then he basically says, how could I do anything else? Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. How could I be? This thing really happened. I was really greeted by the resurrected Lord. And indeed, he hasn't been, as he says in verse 20, he hasn't been disobedient. But he says, I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. I've been everywhere preaching the gospel far and wide according to the commission that you gave the 12 apostles. That's what he's basically declaring. You can look at Acts 1.8 and basically Paul is repeating the same thing. Be a witness to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's only because he's been obedient to that 
to that message, to that calling, that Paul is there in that predicament, that he's there arrested and he's been harassed and threatened with death. Verse 21, and that's what he says. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And yet, Paul is completely unfazed. All of that doesn't really matter much to Paul. Because his one purpose in life is to preach. And notice, that's what he says, verse 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim lights both to our people and to the Gentiles. In a room full of critics, in a room full of intellectuals, in a room full of religious and political authorities, Paul doesn't budge. He doesn't back down. And in fact, he says, I'm standing here as confidently as ever that I've done nothing but just preach what Moses and all the prophets said. You can go search all the scrolls. You can read all the books. I'm preaching nothing that they wouldn't themselves have testified. He's confident in that what he is saying is the truth. I love Paul's words in verse 22 again, where he says, so I stand here. This is reminiscent. I couldn't help myself, so forgive me. This is all very reminiscent of one of my historical and church heroes, of course, Martin Luther, who in the year 1521 was brought before the Diet of Worms, basically a council, a tribunal at the city of Worms. If you know anything about Luther, you know that in 1517, he, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And it sent shockwaves through Europe, through the church. Finally, there was a theological awakening, a gospel awakening. And, and so much so that people, villagers, the common folk, so to speak, are suddenly understanding the truths of, of spirituality and faith. And it's obviously causing a lot of division throughout all of Europe and Germany, especially as Luther is gaining in popularity by the day. And he's summoned to Worms where he stands on trial for everything that he's written and for everything that he's taught. He's summoned there. Uh, Luther, of course, was expecting to go to this place, this diet, you know, it's a council of religious folk and political folk, and he's expecting a debate. We're going to have a healthy doctrinal theological debate. But instead, his accuser, Johann Eck, he says and he asks them this straightforward question. Will you stand by what you have written or will you recant? No debate. No healthy discussion over what he has uh, sort of revealed or exposed in the church. Instead, just a simple question. And if he stood by his teachings, Luther risked excommunication and execution. If he recanted, if he abandoned what he, all the things that for the last few years he has said and preached and, and, and declared and, and written and, 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 and ministered to so many people, he risked playing the fool and being the laughingstock of Europe. Luther was given a day. They had a recess. 
Luther is given a day to consider this fateful question. It's a very, very consequential question. And he gives, the next day, he gives this wonderful response. These are Luther's words, according to one historian. Luther, before that tribunal, as he's again asked, will you recant or are you going to stand by what you have said? And he says, quote, unless... I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Luther was convinced beyond anything else that the gospel, the good news of justification and salvation in Christ was a free message. And accordingly, it ought to be declared and dispensed freely to sinners everywhere. The gospel was nothing more than the word of forgiveness through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's what justifies the sinner. Not works, not penance, not indulgences, not prayers, not anything else that the sinner could do. There's nothing in a sinner that, that, that he could do to merit what Christ had so willingly given That's what he was standing there declaring and preaching. That's what he had revealed through all those documents, through all those theses, through all those things he was trying to show that the church had missed it. They had missed what was so fundamental to the faith is that this thing called salvation was not earned. It was given as a gift in Christ. And he had come to that conclusion, as perhaps you know, by reading nothing but the word of God. Luther, a student of the word, was suddenly awakened by the Holy Spirit, we could say. And he revealed, and he was shown how in Romans chapter 1, how it was precisely the righteousness of God that was given to him that we live by according to faith. So he stands there. Recant and be executed or, 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 or recant and, and, and live or, or stand by your word and be executed. And he says, I can't. Because the word of God says what is true. And how can I go against that? How can I turn my back on what is so clear to me according to the words of God? Again, he's standing before Roman Catholic elders and leaders. And he's saying that this is what the word says. You yourselves should know. You priests and cardinals. To recant for Luther meant turning his back on God himself. And so he says, no, I cannot and I will not. I have to believe in some way that Luther's stance there and in some small way was inspired by Paul's before him. Because that's exactly what has appeared to us in this scene. Centuries before Luther and Worms stood Paul and Caesarea standing as a solitary witness to the truth that changes everything. And before that council, 
That council that Paul is standing before, it's filled with religious elite, religious expert, and political dignitaries. What does he say? Paul essentially says, I, my conscience, is captive to the word of God. And I've declared nothing but that. I've, declared, I've said nothing but what has been recorded and revealed according to the prophets and according to Moses. And I can say nothing else. I can say nothing but that which I've been appointed to say. As he says again, verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would said would come to pass. And what is that? It is that, that glorious fact of the gospel that the Christ of God, Jesus, would come and suffer what? The brunt of all of God's wrath for sin, for all of the sins of the world, and he would die as a curse, but that he, that Christ of God, would emerge from death and be raised, as he says in Romans 4.25, raised for our justification. You see, again, as I said earlier, they messed up. They gave this preacher a pulpit, and what is he doing? He's preaching to them. He's preaching and he's testifying to the fundamental fact of the gospel that no matter how broken you are, no matter how sinful you are, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how dark your past is, there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. He's a living, breathing testimony of that. Paul is standing there. This is the testimony that I can declare for you. It's the good news I've experienced. It's the good news of God. It's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I stand here in front of you because without this truth, who knows where he would be? And even when Festus interrupts him in verses 24 through 29, I won't read for the sake of time, but Festus interrupts him. Actually, I will read it. Just, just bear with me. He says, he, he proclaims, Lights both to people and the Gentiles. And then Festus, he says, and it says, as he was saying these things, verse 24, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You are crazy. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said calmly, I imagine, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. For I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would, I would to God. That not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What is Paul's heart? His heart is revealed right here, is to see everyone in that hall be as radically changed as he was. My life has been entirely turned upside down and inside out. And I desire the same, same thing for each of you, he says. And notice how does he go about that? 
He doesn't get distracted by their politics. He doesn't uh, try to berate them about their behavior, whether it was good or ill. He doesn't lecture them about morals and about being, uh, how to go back to being more ethical. He says what? There is one thing that changes everything. It is the one thing that the truth of these pages of Scripture are filled with. It's the truth that the Christ of God has come to take our place and die for our sins and rise from the dead in order that we might be forgiven and sanctified, made holy by faith. That's Paul's message. All of Scripture is concerned with that. All of Scripture I would say, is is concerned with this glorious, albeit scandalous truth That you, the worst of the worst sinners, you've been redeemed by the blood of God's only son. That's the message. And it should be something that's scandalous to us. It should make us just go stop and just wonder and awe. We should just fall to our knees every time we think about it. That this truth of God is the truth that remains Full and free forever. That we can look at this cross. And what do we see? We don't see a torture device. Have you ever thought about that? We wear crosses. We hang crosses from our earrings. We, we have crosses on our t-shirts. Crosses on our arms if, they're, if you're into tattoos. We have... A device that was specifically designed for torture and execution. And we hold it up as what? The emblem of life and hope and faith. Why? Because of the resurrection. (laughs) That's why Paul is standing here. I'm here because of one thing. I was greeted on the road by the resurrected Lord and he gave me this thing. How can I say anything else? And later Luther would say basically the same thing. And later I imagine that we might have to say the same thing. I'm not a prophet. I'm not trying to predict the future. Who knows what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 odd years in this beloved United States of America. But I will say this one thing. When it comes to a day... When you will be forced to make a stand for what you believe, what will you be standing on? What will you have as the ground of your faith? Is it the great wisdom and morals that you have gleaned from the scriptures? Is it the illustrious history and all of the great ways in which it indoctrinates us in truth? Or... Is it the simple fact that the one who knew no sin became sin for you and I, that we might become the righteousness of God? And we could say, along with Paul and along with Luther, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I, I pray that for myself. And maybe that sounds selfish, but I pray beyond anything that I would, gun to my head, I would be able to say, I can't recant because my conscience is bound to the word of God. 
This, my friends, is the truth that God has revealed. It's the truth that changes everything. May we, too, be able to say, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Let us pray.